Good morning and welcome to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations. I'm your host, John Sumser, and today we're going to be talking with Michael Rosenbaum, who is the CEO, chairman, founder, and all of those things for a company called Arena. It's going to be an exciting conversation. As far as I can tell, Arena is the only company in the HR tech market that has actually figured out how to use AI to directly generate profitability um, while pursuing a noble agenda. And so, so listen in. Michael's a pretty amazing guy. Good morning. How are you? Thank you so much. I'm great. Thanks, John, for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, this is going to be fun. This is going to be fun. I, I, I so enjoy talking Absolutely. to you. So take a moment and introduce yourself. Um. Thank you again. Um, my name is Mike Rosenbaum. I, uh, I am the founder and CEO of Arena, and uh, my background is I've been working in the space for, for a while. I started my career, I was going to be an academic, and I was a fellow at Harvard teaching and doing research and writing on economics and law in the late 90s, and did some work at the time for the Clinton White House, originally around technology policy and then around labor issues. The Clinton White House was building a cluster of policies based on an idea that low-income communities were untapped retail markets and built policies that incentivized folks like Walmart and 7-Eleven to expand in lower-income communities, and I disagreed with the policies. I said, that might be true, but more significantly, a lower-income community is an untapped talent market. And it's an untapped talent market because the market for talent is based on resumes. Resumes correlate with socioeconomic background and race and gender, but they're not necessarily great predictors of success in a job. And at the time, uh, the hedge fund, the high-speed trading hedge fund industry was, was ramping up. And I said, you know, high-speed trading hedge funds are, are using data to make the financial markets work better. Why couldn't we do the same thing in the labor markets? Um, you know, if we did that, folks who were best in a job could get the job and organizations could get better talent and therefore be happy. And the response was the guy who came up with the other ideas, more famous than you are. We're going with him. So I lost that argument. I went back to my <laughs> ivory tower and my, my academic advisor who's going to help me get the assistant professor job said, I think you're more interested in sticking your teeth into this problem. So I moved to Baltimore because it was a post-industrial city that had had long-term macroeconomic shocks. And I started a company that applied these ideas to the software engineering market and built out a company that was built on a technology that was designed to predict the likelihood that someone after receiving training would be in the top 2% of all software engineers. Scaled that business up, so you know that business today is now sort of nine figures in revenue and focused on the software engineering space. But in 2010, had socially met an executive at a hospital in the D.C. suburbs who asked me what I did, and I told her, and she said, you know, we have this really big problem, which is that we turn over something like a quarter of our staff every year, and over a third of the people we hire don't don't last a year in certain jobs. Could you help us? And I said, I don't actually know anything about healthcare. I know a lot about tech and I know a lot about data, but I don't know much about healthcare. And she said, what if we're an early customer? You think you could figure it out? So we made a copy of the technology um, in that first company called Catalyte and dropped it into a subsidiary and tuned it to predict for the likelihood that a given individual would achieve a particular outcome, specifically retention, in a particular role, in a particular location, um, in a particular department, under a particular manager, and in certain situations on a particular shift. And then we made those predictions and then delivered them back to the organization. And we deployed that technology into the original hospital and four other hospitals and two long-term care facilities. 
Um, and the results look too good. Um, you know, our worst result was a reduction in turnover by 45%. Um, and I said, I don't buy it. We don't even know what an RN does for a living. We certainly don't know how a hospital works. So, um, so we spent a, three years um, working in hospitals, long-term care facilities, figuring out what data we could get, what data we couldn't get, and uh, um, you know, what an RN does and how the organization's put together and tuned the, changed the technology and tuned the data. And um, the numbers got better. So starting 2013, we started to scale it up spun the company out of the, as a subsidiary of the original company at the end of 2014, spent a year and a half splitting up the businesses. So for the last four years, um, you know, this business has been a standalone business and we've been scaling it up um, primarily in healthcare and now, now in some other restaurants like, and other verticals like restaurants. So, so I just want to double back and underline a couple of things that you just said for the, for the, for the benefit of the audience. You're, you're, I, I don't know exactly how old you are, mid-40s maybe. Um, and, um, uh, and you've already built a nine-figure revenue company. A nine-figure revenue company, that, that's, that's, that's not a kind of a normal accomplishment. Um, uh, I've, I've talked to hundreds and hundreds of, of CEOs here, and they're the the club that you're in is a small club, um, and then to go oh well well I, you know I built this nine figure company um, um, I'm more interested in this other thing I think I'm going to go do that <laughs> That's, you know you know having having built your nine figure company you're supposed to you're supposed to launch into an era of complete hedonism and decay. Um, um, <laughs> And, um, and, so and actually, you, you chose this other path. What's wrong with you? <laughs> so, so it, offers, it took a very long time for that company to get to nine figures. And one of the ways it got to nine figures was um, a number of years ago, I realized that, um, you know, that the technology and the product were, um, were really interesting to me and, you know, and I could be effective at. But as that company got bigger, there were – there were certainly other people out there who'd be much better at being CEO of that company than, than I would be. And so, um, so I'm still the controlling shareholder of that company, but I brought on a CEO to run it a number of years ago. And he is about a thousand times as good at that job as I ever was. And so he's really been able to do wonders with it. And, you know, and it allowed me to, to, to focus on that business on the things that I'm more effective at, um, you know, but equally, if not more significantly, allow me to really focus my time on arena where, you know, where we're able to have really dramatic horizontal scale on issues of the labor market not working correctly. And, you know, I'm sure your audience, you know, knows as much or more about this as, than I do. But, you know, but the core problem of the informational asymmetry in the labor market is one that has a whole bunch of incredibly malignant impacts and, you know, and the fact that, you know, each of us aren't great at hiring and also each of us as potential job applicants or folks doing a particular job um, don't necessarily know where we're going to thrive. But the problem of not knowing those things, that informational asymmetry, causes a host of problems, in, including things as momentous as, frankly, you know, a weakening middle class. So, you know, so the idea of being able to impact that at scale um, 
you know, across many verticals was, was really interesting to me. So, so it's, it's worth taking some time to unpack some of the things that you said, because, because you're, you're, you're so steeped in the language of business and, and academic economics, it's not clear that what you're talking about is a tool set that moves people from one industry into another industry by making predictions about how well they will do there and that you have figured out how to do this very profitably and that you are at a, at a point in the process where you are figuring out how to really scale the operation to, to, um, to massive size. Right. And, and so, so this, Absolutely. it couldn't be, it couldn't be more appropriate that we're talking today because this is the kind of actual solution to the structural problems that we're having that people are hunting around for right now. Um, and, yeah. and, 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 and so, so talk a little bit about that. This is, this is, this is a, this is, this is profitable idealism. Is that fair? <laughs> um, so, you know, for-profit versus non-profit entities are really just a tax, tax designation. Um, fundamentally, if you, if you can't, whether you're a for-profit or a non-profit, if you can't generate margin, um, if what, you are, what, what your innovation does does not generate um, economic value that can be captured in some way that generates a lot more incoming cash than it costs you, then you can't really scale something to be massive. You know, fundamentally, the goal of ARENA is to rewire the entire labor market around outcomes. And our belief is that if we can rewire the entire labor market around outcomes, then, frankly, enterprises will be able to unlock massive amounts of productivity they otherwise couldn't do. And, um, you know, we can create pathways for upward economic mobility for every individual in society. Um, but in order to generate that kind of scale, you need cash flow. And, you know, without cash flow, you can't get there. Okay, so that, that's interesting. But you also do this fascinating thing for your clients, which is, particularly in this early going time, um, your clients save enormous amounts of money when they use your service. Um, I, wonder, I wonder if you've ever thought about asking them to spend the savings um, on improving the things that caused the problems in the first place. <laughs> Um, <laughs> um, so we, we are a commercial enterprise, so telling people what to do with the money we save them is, isn't always the best commercial strategy, but I will tell you that, you know, uh, <laughs> the, core, the, core, the core of Arena um, is, you know, is a platform that sits behind the other systems of a large enterprise or an enterprise, you know, on the larger side of small, medium, or large. And, um, you know, Typically, folks initially use Arena to improve retention. That's the, that's the metric that someone wants to move initially when they first use the platform on the premise that, um, that increased turnover um, has a whole bunch of costs, but some of the most easily measurable are things like contract labor over time and some, um, you know, some sort of pure marginal cost that you can actually trace to a budget quarter. 
And, you know, we have 100% success rate across our client base at improving retention. Our average impact 12 months after going live is a reduction of turnover by 21%. 24 months after going live is a reduction of turnover by 43%. And turnover is important. I mean, it's, you know, it's mundane in some ways, but, but relevant in other ways. And, um, and, you know, because there's cash you can tie to it, it makes it easier for someone to adopt this. And so if you can say, we're going to reduce your contract labor and overtime cost by five to 10 times what it costs you to use arena, then it's a really easy yes. And we don't necessarily say what to do with the four to nine times our fees that someone's saving in easily measurable cash in a budget quarter. Um, but once folks see it work and trust us, it allows us to move beyond the initial champions who are typically the folks who bring us in. So typically you have a large enterprise, you have a handful of people who really get why this works. They'll bring arena in a bunch of other folks will say, Oh, that's the group that always likes the next, the new shiny object. Um, we're just going to wait them out. But then they see retention improve and retention hurts everybody. They feel it particularly first year turnover. So, um, so it gets a larger group of people involved, and then people will say to us, what else can we do? And it's not stuff that we charge for, but, um, you know, but things like, what else can we do to solve some of the underlying issues that cause some of our challenges? And there are things that, you know, that Arena, by applying, you know, I, mean, I know this sounds sort of lingo-ish, but, you know, machine learning to building out a workforce, by doing that, um, you know, there are things that Arena can help with there are a larger number of things that Arena can't directly help with. But part of what you're doing is because you're demonstrating that, that machine learning use effectively can solve some of the greatest pain points of a wide range of people across an organization, um, it gets people bought in to the idea of innovating more. The next question is, is – um right out of what you were just talking about. So so around the 1st of February, the 15th of February this year, much of our historic data that's getting used around the industry became kind of questionable. And, and you don't have to look far to find um, the great pontificators, maybe me included, um, um, Declaring sort of the, if not the death, the the um, the induced coma for machine learning because it's not so good at dealing with emergent phenomena and and there's a problem with the data in a lot of places, but but you're not saying that right? You're saying that your data is your, your data is good, and I think the answer to that is that you have um, the capacity to harness clear concrete feedback to validate whether or not your models are working. And, and that's not always the case in uh, the kinds of recommendation engines that are coming to market. So, so talk a little bit about the role of hard feedback and, and performance objectives in making your machine learning implementation work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the most important part of arena. I mean, there's lots of important parts, but, but the core to arena is the ability to get um, a real time or almost real time feed of outcome data from every client. So for retention, that's raw payroll data. 
for whether or not someone's going to show up to work on time. That's from a time and attendance or a scheduling system. For employee engagement, it's from an employee engagement platform. Um, for, you know, sort of name your outcome. But, but the core to Arena is that every client, with every client, we get a feed of that data that, you know, that comes with some frequency, no less frequently than once every 30 days, um, depending on the nature of the integration. And that's the data lake that lets us see what's going on. And, you know, that has always been important. Um, you know, every enterprise is, is not just a snapshot in time. It's, it's evolving. It's evolving because of external forces. It's evolving because of internal forces. You know, in the early days of what we were doing, some of the more interesting stuff was what happens to uh, the predictions in a particular department when the manager changes over. And, you know, being able to pick up on that and see those shifts and adjust to those shift, shifts was, was fundamental to the ability of our generating the outcomes we needed to generate. You know, and at the same time, things like, um, you know, using demographic data feeds from, from, you know, data we would get in an ATS system that would sit to the side, obviously it's not the models, but to decide to be able to evaluate whether or not, um, you know, there was implicit bias or explicit bias seeping into certain decision-making was, was fundamental to our ability to achieve what we achieve. And interestingly, that same functionality became exponentially more important with the rapidity of the shocks to the labor market that have happened over the last 90 to 120 days. And what it's let us do is let it do a couple of things. One is it allows us, you know, because, you know, so we now have, say, 90 or 120 days of data on the impacts of the kinds of shocks that we've seen. It allows us to, to look at that and see potentially what that means and get some early thoughts on it. It also allows us to look over time at things like what happens when there, I mean, there's a very different scale of issue, but, you know, in healthcare, obviously, very impactful very significantly impacted by public health issues. What happens when there's a particularly acute flu epidemic in a particular geographic area? What does that do to various outcome metrics and the way the models shift in that area? And we can use some of those learnings to apply together with the data that we see, you know, real time or not actually real time, but close to real time, that is outcome data that allows us to, to generate these predictions. So can we tell you for certainty what our impacts are going to be in the next year? No, of course not. But, you know, but do we have the kinds of feedback loops that allow us to, to evolve those predictions as the macro and micro environments change? Absolutely. So, so one of the things that I get from listening to you talk about this is that um, – um, I'm listening to you talk about this – is that the – depth of the models that you've built um, is extraordinary, but in order to deliver this to the market, you have to understate the depth of your expertise. Um, uh, how, how do you deal with that? And, and if you have a customer who's curious about sort of the deep elements of your models, how do you, how do you manage that? There must be a, quite a range of interest inside of the customer base. So that's a, that's a complicated question that boils down to um, <laughs> uh, does simplification get in your way? And um, uh, if somebody, if somebody wants to dig deeper, is that a good thing or a bad thing? 
Well, as you can probably tell, we love it when people want to dig deeper. Love it when people want to dig deeper. Um, you know, some of the conversations we love to have are around implicit bias. So, for example, so we're headquartered in Baltimore, and one of the advantages of being headquartered in Baltimore is that we're essentially next to the National Security Agency, which provides a rich pool of data science talent. And, you know, one of the mechanisms we use to deal with implicit bias is, um, is basically a repurposed methodology that was originally developed by the intelligence community to deal with deep fakes. And it's called uh, generative adversarial networks. And um, we will occasionally have a client who has a deep technical understanding who wants to go deep on that. And nothing is more fun than that for us than that. Um, but at the other end of the spectrum, um, you know, in an earlier iteration of this product, we would deliver predictions to end users in an enterprise that would be a prediction, a zero to 100 prediction of the likelihood of something happening. And what we realized was that, um, you know, that at the other end of the sophistication spectrum, we would have end users. So, you know, a manager in a hospital, you know, who was fabulous and had great bedside manner and incredibly motivated interpersonally, but very uncomfortable with quantitative concepts. And, you know, and that delivering a number was, was a little off-putting. And so we actually transitioned the way that we deliver our predictions to certain end users to green, yellow, red, which is about as simplistic as you can get, with green meaning someone's likely to improve that outcome metric, yellow meaning they're likely to have no impact on that outcome metric, and red being, meaning they're likely to make that outcome metric worse. But that we realized that, that, we had, that there were folks who didn't really, didn't really, they wanted to know if it was real, um, but didn't really love the idea of digging too deep on the technology and the data mm -hmm. and other folks who were skeptical and wanted to go really deep. And we needed to develop a, frankly, a sales and client engagement model that allowed us to meet a client where they are. Um, so from a sophistication level, you know, which is really just a parallel to frankly, how you have to build the technology generally, which is, again, to meet clients where they are. I mean, one of the reasons we sit behind the other systems of an enterprise is that change is difficult and, you know, most people don't want to learn a new system. And so we realized that meeting folks where they were meant using the tools they already had in place and just adding additional functionality that enabled them to make predictions. So again, I, I hope that answered your question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it sounds like rather than aspiring to become some sort of platform, um, what what you're looking to do is is to become a a sort of an add-in that allows better control of outcomes uh, for customers by delivering the predictive capacity inside of the tools they're already using. Is that fair? That's ex exactly it. And that's the way that we can drive adoption most significantly. So, you know, an example, you know, hospital systems use, tend to use ATSs, you know, with very high adoption rates. Um, assisted living operators that are geographically dispersed that generally have the executive director of a community not, not making those, that's typically the hiring manager. That's the person who's making the hiring decisions. Generally have very low ATS adoption rates, but high usage of email. And so, you know, in an assisted living operator with low ATS adoption, um, you know, the typical workflow is executive director shows up, spends five minutes checking email, does a stand up with their team, and then all bets are off. So we deliver an email in the five minutes they're already checking their email. 
that says, here are the people who applied since your last, since you last checked, and here are their predictions of the outcomes they're going to achieve. And if you want to do something, click here. So again, just meeting folks where they are. Cool. So, so I'm, I'm a big fan of your much larger vision for the company. Would you take a, <laughs> a couple of minutes and, and talk about uh, going from a healthy, profitable sort of uh, uh, out-of-the-pack out basic startup to um, um, moderating the national labor market. That's, that's, that's such an interesting thing that you're trying to do. So, so tell me about that as we wrap this up. Absolutely. Um, so, um, you know, last year we did a couple of things that became incredibly important 90 days ago, one of which is we dropped a product that was in beta onto our platform that was designed to point the technology outside the applicant pools and the workforces of an enterprise. So instead of making predictions about folks in the applicant pool and the workforce, we're going to have folks who come through social media or through a job board or who are rejected applicants from other clients where the other client agreed to it um, and predict the likelihood that that individual would be likely to achieve an outcome in some job they didn't know about before. Um, and the other thing we did is we expanded into restaurants. And so a few months ago, when the labor, shock, labor market shock started, we said, we're going to um, offer this product for free for a number of months to our client base, and we're going to ask the restaurant clients if we can route folks who otherwise would have worked in restaurants into healthcare, and the answer was yes. Um, that then took off, and on the premise that, you know, that if you can basically create a website and say, we're filling, you know, today, say we're filling 150,000 jobs a year in our client base, and, you know, spend a few minutes giving us some information, and we'll predict the likelihood that, you know, we'll, that you'll achieve some outcome in jobs within 10 miles of you. And then we deliver that list of jobs that are jobs that are already on our platform to, to the individuals who have come to the site. Um, and the hiring managers on those jobs are using the same platform to make hiring decisions. And so if someone says they're interested, they're very likely to be hired. And what it lets us do is it lets us um, do things like identify when someone's working in a hotel and isn't working in that hotel anymore, but it turns out would be great in a hospital somewhere. And that allows us to, do, to, to really get at the problems we're trying to solve, right? So problem one being that we all have biases when, when we hire folks. You know, we generally like to hire people like ourselves. Some of that is malicious, um, you know, so class, race, gender, Others are not malicious. I think someone with a four-year college degree is going to be better at this than someone with a community college degree. And, you know, but both are biases that lead us to make poor decisions. And so you solve that issue. But also as individuals, you know, why do I work at, you know, in this hotel? Because I had a friend who worked there. Um, it's down the street from me. I knew about it. You know, that hotel had a big recruiting marketing budget. And, you know, I may not have realized that I'd be much happier working in, you know, this other industry in this completely different role. And not only would I, might be, I be happier, I might actually make a lot more money. And by, by using a hub like this to address that question, to have as many people on that hub as possible, and, you know, and given the footprint we have, I mean, today we're, we're deployed into, into healthcare operators, healthcare providers as, as a group, process three and a half million unique job applicants per year. So 17% of the U.S. healthcare workforce. Um, you know, the ability to sort of route folks across verticals 
allows us to help folks find places where they will thrive, where they'll find dignity, where they'll have economic growth. And it helps us, it helps us help an enterprise rethink how to source talent and who is going to be best in the job in a way that allows us to put a much more effective and productive person in a job than they can find otherwise. So, so the part that I like so much is that, is that you imagine this going well beyond healthcare and moving people from hospitality into healthcare to um, a large slug of the overall labor market. Um, um, how, about, how about a little bit more about how you get out of the, uh, the, the niche that you're in into the broader game? <laughs> Definitely. So what we are doing now is we are – um, we're working with early adopters in different verticals. So, um, so we're doing that already in restaurants, and we're we're looking for a few more verticals where um, where a cup where we can have sort of two or three, um, you know, progressive companies that, you know, that are interested in working with us to to make whatever tweaks needed to be need to be made for this to work seamlessly in that particular vertical. We do think this verticalizes because of the verticalization of outcome metrics. And, um, and so, you know, our strategy is to work with a handful of our early adopter customers and a handful of verticals, um, you know, as the product gets tweaked in those with those early adopters, then to scale aggressively into those verticals with the idea that over the next several years, you know, we're across numerous verticals, you know, in the U S and potentially beyond the U S um, in a way that allows us to route folks across verticals and, you know, and really to move the needle on different, different outcome metrics in each of these verticals and to, to be across a, a very substantial portion of the entire labor market. Thanks for that. This has been such a great conversation. I wish we had a couple hours instead of a half an hour. Um, Definitely. Uh, would, would, would you take a moment to reintroduce yourself and tell people how they might get a hold of you? Absolutely. Um, again, my name's Mike Rosenbaum, and the company is Arena. The website is arena.io, and, uh, and you should feel free to reach out to me directly at mrosenbaum, so M-R-O-S-E-N-B-A-U-M, at arena.io. Great, and I just I just want to take a moment to notice that that the work that you're doing is actually solving problems in the in the in the underlying sector that the protests are all about right now. And what I what I appreciate so much is that we didn't we didn't hear any chest beating about how relevant you are to all of that over the course of the conversation. That, that, that stuff is getting pretty obnoxious at this point. And, and, and thank you. Thank you. Thank you for just doing the job and not, and not um, rubbing your chest while you're doing the job. Um, you've been listening. Thank you. I, you know, I always love talking to you, John. Yeah. You've been listening to HR Executive Conversations, and we've been talking with Mike Rosenbaum, who is founder, CEO, and all the rest of those things for a company called Arena.io. Look them up on the on the web. They're pretty amazing. Thanks for tuning in, and we will talk to you same time next week. Bye-bye now. 